0: I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was born in Mumbai.
1: I was born in Vientiane, Laos. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Stephanie Valence, filling in for Caitlin Dwyer. Farzad Larky was born in Iran prior to the revolution. He grew up in a comfortable middle-class family, but when the Shah was overthrown, everything changed. Between 1979 and 1996, Farzad, his parents, and his siblings all emigrated to the United States, though each family member traveled a very different path. Farzad's voyage spanned 11 years and six countries— from southern Iran to Portland, Oregon. He traveled by foot, donkey, car, and plane. There were chances to stop along the way, but he had his sights set on the U.S. and the freedom that it represented. Here is his story. Farzad's life changed in 1979 when Iranian revolutionaries ousted the Western-leaning Shah. Under the rule of Ayatollah Khomeini, a new constitution was approved. Women's rights laws were repealed, and conservative religious values drove the government. The next year, Iran went to war with Iraq. Farzad's older brother had moved to the U.S. in 1979, right before the revolution. Farzad was soon to follow.
0: Twelfth grade uh, never started, basically. I was registering for this senior year of high school when the war started, Iran-Iraq war. And then, basically, the school never opened. We had to leave the city. We had to move, you know, bombs and all that stuff. We moved to Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. There was no hope of going back home because the war just kept going on. I finally managed to finish high school. I attended high school for like a month and a half or something and then did the final exams and then got my high school diploma. But at that point uh, in Iran, it was mandatory to go join the military. It's... uh, One of those things, like, if you don't do your military service, you can't really go to college, you can't go, you know, work, nothing. So that's when I decided either I have to go join the military or leave. That's when I left. That's when I left Iran.
1: After seeing the death and destruction brought by the war, 21-year-old Farzad decided to find refuge with his brother in the United States. Leaving Iran wasn't a safe option by any means, but it was a chance at freedom, a chance to determine his own future. In October 1985, Farzad and three other men took the risk and began the journey by crossing the border into Karachi, Pakistan.
0: We had a, a guide, uh, we should say our smuggler, you know. He, we met up with him in this town in close to uh, Iran-Pakistan uh, border. So we met up with the, uh, with the guide, they put us in a pickup truck, basically, back of a pickup truck, and then drove along the border and then just got off the main road and went on the dirt road and everything. And then from there, they gave us to this uh, uh, Baluch. Baluch are the, the local indigenous people of that region. Basically, it's southeast Iran. It's uh, the province called Baluchistan. We were each given one guide. So there were like eight people, and we, we each had a donkey. We rode the donkey. <laughs> it's terrible. You ride a donkey for hours. We traveled during the night. It was, it was terrifying. Eventually, I think it took us about three days to get near the border, near Pakistan. That's when they told us, okay, this is the hardest part of the trip. At that time, they built a road, so the Iranian border patrols we're driving up and down, you could hear the cars, we could, we could see the light. We're going to go through this valley and we're going to run as fast as you can. That's when you're really actually going into Pakistan. So once we got there, uh, I remember the, the car went down the road and started going up the hills. So we see it's getting you know, far, far from us. That's when the guys like, okay, this is the time, now run. So we ran... Once we get into Pakistan, they take us to this small village, Man, This guy, for us, was a hero. That guy, Adina, he says, "Okay, uh, I can try to take you guys to Karachi, but it's not going to be easy. And it's going to cost money. And we're like, that's fine. Money is fine. So he he came back, he said, I found somebody. He said, they're going to take us to Karachi. There were like seven of us sitting in the back of a pickup truck, a Toyota truck. Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. We traveled for about three days, and uh, you can't hold food so much, you know, we can't really eat because, you know, constantly in the bumps and all that stuff. And then uh, they were giving us uh, chai almost, sweet tea with milk in it, with some cookies, you know. And sometimes we keep it down, sometimes we didn't. We get about 100 kilometers before Karachi, the the driver says, I'm not going to go any further, because that's when all the posts are, all the police posts. And we say, well, what are we going to do? Adina is like, well, we have to find somebody else. So I think those guys helped them find somebody else who had a uh, small Isuzu or some kind of Japanese car, but like tiny. So all of us are piling in in that car, basically. And then they go around and then ask other cars that coming uh, across, you know, about the post. So I guess they kind of knew where the posts are, We had to walk around the post and then join them again. So this this last 100 kilometers, I think it took us probably a day or two maybe. It was the worst part of the trip because just the whole time they were nervous. And actually at one point uh, they told us, uh, you need to stay awake. You know, don't fall asleep. Because if I tell you guys run, you need to run. And at one point uh, they had to do that and... We run in the bushes and in the dark, basically. And one of the guys with us, he fell asleep and the, the Pakistani police got him. But thank God they'd give him some kind of bribe. He, they took his watch. Yeah, we finally reached Karachi. And it's funny thing, was, was they told us, the last checkpoint is the hardest one because they catch a lot of people there. But they said, uh, we need to go in the pray time. That's when they go pray. That's when you want to go through because they're all praying. And it worked. We went through, you know, and we got to Karachi. And that uh, guide basically took us to his house, Uh, Adine, took us to his house. Two months, I stayed in Karachi. I remember one, one person who's been there for almost a year, and at that point, he became an addict. Yeah, he was doing, like, drugs and stuff like that. They told us, they said, you don't want to stay here too long, you know, because uh, there, are some bad, there are some bad stories about people who just got stuck there and they don't even care about leaving anymore. I was like, wow, we need, we need to get out of here. At that point, you need to know who can get you out. There is no way that you can go to, like, you know, U.S. that far. Everywhere you go, it's going to be hard. They told us uh, Germany is probably the easiest place to go because... They accept refugees.
1: In December of 1985, Farzad paid another smuggler to help with the next leg of his trip. His Iranian passport had been stolen, so the smuggler provided him and 40 other refugees plane tickets to East Berlin and fake passports. When they arrived in Bucharest, Romania, for their connecting flight... They were stopped when the airlines realized that none of the travelers had visas that allowed them to enter Germany.
0: They told us Iranian consulate is checking us out. There was this really nice lady from the Romanian airline. There was a guy among us who spoke really good English. He had actually a legit passport. He had a legit Iranian passport. He and this lady, they went to uh, to, uh, East German embassy. In Bucharest, with all our fake passports, they all know what's going on. You know, they all, there's nothing to hide. They got us all visas. We we get to Berlin. They line us up. And they don't talk to you. Nothing. They're just like very serious, very very serious. There was like a really short bus ride, and then they let us out. I remember exactly the the one guy, unlocked this door like a huge door, and he goes, "Go in." So we all go through that door. They got. Locked the door behind us. Now we're in West Germany. That's how it works, because you can't stay in the East.
1: Farzad and his fellow refugees passed through the Berlin Wall during the height of the Cold War. Over 100 East Germans had given their lives trying to do the same. Though the refugees had been allowed to land there, the communists in East Berlin did not want them to stay.
0: And now we're in West Germany. Everything is different. Everything is modern. It's, I think, a day or two before Christmas again. And then uh, 1985, December is cold, really, really cold. We don't have much clothing, just a little bit of money. So at this point, I think how many of us, uh, five or six of us are together in one group. And then uh, one of the guys we met at the house we stayed in, Karachi, his dad has a friend in West Berlin, so he gave us a phone number, maybe he can help us. Or they said, if the police stops you, you're in luck because then they take you in and then they book you, whatever, and you just apply for uh, you know asylum. Yeah, you want to be caught because otherwise, what are you going to do? You know you want to be like go in the process, basically right. but I swear. The, I would see police car look at us and just like keep going. You know, nobody want even talk to us. And then I make a phone call to that number I was given. The guy is like, "So who are you?" I said, "Well, this is you know, I got the number from this and stuff." And make the story short, he says, "Well, we don't really have much of a space for
1: you guys, but I might as well just come over. We'll see what happened. The man owned a Persian grocery store in West Berlin. When Farzad and the others arrived, they found a group gathering in the back celebrating Yalda Night, a Persian festival marking the longest night of the year.
0: And there are a whole bunch of people there, you know, like uh, smoking hookah and music and stuff like that. So anyways, there were some really like uh, not-so-nice characters in, the, in that group They were like telling us, oh yeah, you guys ousted the Shah and now you have to pay for it and all that stuff. And we were just like some young people, you know, and then one of the guys, oh, leave him alone. They, they, they just, they had a long trip, you know, they, these guys that have nothing to do with that revolution, all stuff like that. So we were just like, we just want a place to one night so we can figure out what to do the next day and stuff like that. So they give us a place to stay that night. And the owner of that place they even charge he charged us the next day for he was really mean. The next day he opens his store and all of us we put our money together, we go exchange it to German marks. So we have like two, three hundred German marks all together. And then uh, this one guy shopping at the store, really young guy, he was a student there, Iranian guy. When he heard their story, he's like, you guys coming with me. I'm, I'm going to take you to my house or my apartment, and then I'll, we'll figure out what to do.
1: The young man welcomed them into his home and then took them to get registered with immigration services. From there, they entered into the German government's process for those seeking refugee status.
0: They send you to certain areas, to certain cities, and then certain towns. So I ended up in this town in, in West Germany uh, called Bruxall, kind of near Frankfurt-Stuttgart area. So that's where they were. We, they send us, and uh, luckily, me and my cousin ended up together, basically in that town. And so they give us a place to stay. You know. Little money every month until they process our application, which can take a long, uh, long, long time. They told us it's very hard to get accepted as a refugee in Germany. You have to, I mean, you have to have so much proof that your life is in danger if you get sent back. So, and they, they give us like interviews, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. court date. But mm-hmm. pretty much, I think I did, I did three tries and all three tries were denied. For refugee status. yeah. So at that point, they give you a, a temporary, like a 30-day or 60-day uh, stay. It's not even a visa. So you can stay for 60 days, 90 days until they decide and, again, re- they renew it again. You, you get a little of a welfare, basically monthly uh, thing in your bank account, a little bit of money for food and stuff like that. And we all live in this really like a, uh, almost like a warehouse uh, type, and like... Kind of embarrassing, like if we meet a girl or something, we don't want to know that we live in this building because the building looks really bad from outside. I end up staying in Germany for close to five years.
1: While Farzad's life in Germany felt both long-term and temporary, his family still struggled back home in Iran.
0: My mom and sister, my mom and at that point also wanted to leave because they all want to come to U.S. because nobody wants to live in Iran anymore. My mom and sister managed to get a visa a tourist uh, visitor visa to Germany. So they traveled to Germany, and I'm like, what are you guys coming here? There's nothing here. Anyways, uh, they stayed, and then I I was kind of back and forth from where I, where I had to stay in southern Germany, and where I took them, I took him to the north. The north is things a little better, you know, the governments are a little more, you know, Relax. more, more relaxed. I was staying with my, my mom and sister in northern Germany, in Bremen, actually my dad comes to visit from iran i haven't seen him for all this time we still haven't seen my brother since we left 79 so this is 10 years we haven't seen him for 10 years so he comes we all just get together basically My, my brother comes from us and we get to see him after 10 years well my brother said maybe i can get mom to us because at that point actually he became citizen
1: farzad's brother moved to the u.s for school and after graduation, got a job in Eugene, Oregon.
0: He applied for my mom, and they told him, it's going to take maybe two months. Your mom can come, no problem. Your sister, although she can't, because she's, you know, she was 17 years old, I think, 16, 17, 16 years old at that time. But your mom has to come here and then apply for your, your sister. So I'm like, how am I going to take care of myself and my sister? Anyways, my brother came to visit, and he went to the U.S. Embassy, uh, in Frankfurt, talk to somebody, to a consul there, who turns to be, by accident, she's from Eugene. My brother is very charming. He's like When he went there, I guess, I don't know, he used his charm and whatever. Oh. This lady said, oh, where do you live? Oh, I live in Eugene. I work for this company Eugene. Oh, I'm from Eugene. Oh, how are things over there? By the way, my mom, I, I filed a petition for my mom, and my sister, she's really young, and my brother, he's here as a refugee. He can't really do much, and he can't take care of her. So what do we do? You know? And she's like, oh, well, there is only one way to get her to the U.S. Uh, to try a humanitarian visa. Within hours, they approved her a humanitarian visa for the U.S. So that at that point, we're all so happy. It's like, oh, my God, you know, I don't have to worry about my sister. You know, she can go with my mom. So, yeah, it was, it was a great thing he did. One of the greatest things he did.
1: While living with his mom and sister in northern Germany, Farzad was unable to get legal employment. Before she left Germany, however, his mom had made connections of her own.
0: My mom met this really
1: nice Persian lady who uh, asked, you know, my, t- they talk about,
0: you know, me and stuff like that. What does he do? Oh, he nothing. He doesn't have a work permit. No, he can't work here. Oh, my son has a restaurant. Let me ask him if he needs it. He always needs people. So I go meet the guy, really, really nice guy, really nice little neighborhood restaurant, Italian kind of French type food. So he's like, do you know anything about cooking? I'm like, not really. He's like, okay, we, we teach you. So I worked with him for, I think, more than a year or so. Yeah, I was one of his main cooks, basically, after that. But this guy, the restaurant, he's offering me to stay there and run the restaurant for him because he's, he's tired of it. Then, uh, and at that point, uh, I have to decide I can't stay where the, in Bremen, in northern Germany, because my, parents, my mom is gone. I don't have a place to live there. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, what do I do? I kind of like the idea. They're like, oh, we have an empty, like a vacant apartment for my brother who never uses this. We can use the apartment, you know. Um, but um, at the end of the day, I told them, I said, well, I'm still illegal. You know, I still can't be here. I got pulled over one time and they told me, I was like, oh, you know, you can't live here. You have to go back south. I'm like, I know, I know. I'm going to go tomorrow. So now I have to make a decision. I'm thinking, OK, if I stay in Germany, I still don't know, I don't know what kind of future I'm going to have. Because after five years, I still, my visa even won't allow me to work or live in a you know, city. At the end of the day, I say, you know what, I don't think I want this life right now. So I say thank you, goodbye. I went back to south, basically where I was supposed to live, in, in Bruxelles.
1: Farzad was tired of living and working illegally. Now that his mom and sister had made it safely to the U.S., he was even more anxious to get there himself. His cousin had a plan to get out of Germany, but it would mean a slight detour through Amsterdam.
0: There's almost no border, you know. There's like a kiosk and there's nobody ever there. So he went to Amsterdam and then he called me. He says, guess where I'm at? I said, where? He says, I'm in Montreal. I made it to Canada. Okay, what do I do? Okay, I'm going to try it. I did not want to try this again because, you know, after uh, all the, all the things, I was like, oh, my God, one more time. Uh, so I, anyways, two of my good friends offered, they had legit passports and stuff like that. They said they offered to drive me. So they drove me to Amsterdam. And then I met up with this guy, Ali. His name was Ali, Persian guy. And I stayed at his apartment for, I think, five or six days. One night, he comes home and he goes... You are very lucky. I said, why? He says, I got you the best passport possible. The Passport is legit. It's, a, it's an Italian passport. Amazing, like perfect. Perfect. You can't even tell this is not my picture. It is my picture on a passport. So he says, not only you have a passport, you have a driver license, Italian driver license. Anyways, he says, you're, you're flying out tomorrow night to Vancouver, BC. And I said, okay, I hope so. He says, well, in any case, you get stopped. And they they arrest you, whatever. They find out this is not you. You don't mention anything about me. You just say you just came from Iran. You don't say nothing about Germany because they can maybe send you back to Germany. He said, you know, you just make up a story. You just made it here and whatever. And uh, we just apply for a refugee because there was still war in Iran. And uh, after all that stuff, then you call me. Then you call me and I do it one more time for you. Uh, this is guaranteed twice, and but he goes, trust me, you're gonna go. You know, just just stay cool and stuff, and you, you know, I'm I'm just nervous talking about. It. my boarding pass and now I need to go to the uh, security immigration and that's the scary part I'm very worried I'm very nervous anyways the time comes I go through the immigration the guy checked my passport actually a lot of people he just looks at their passport and give it to them mine he took it from me he took it from me and then he had some kind of scanner or something because I saw like I saw the light he did something with it I don't know checked it out make sure it's legit or whatever and I'm like inside me I'm like oh my god you know they're gonna find out but yeah he just gave my passport have a good trip i'm like oh my god so i left kept going and i made it on the plane and landed in vancouver i destroyed my passport right before that they told me to just get rid of your passport flush it down the toilet with mm. with your with your ticket so you have nothing on you she goes passport i said and i pretend i don't have no i don't know much english nothing because they don't want to talk to them too much you know you want, you want them to bring, like, an officer and an interpreter and all that stuff. And then I go, no passport, refugee. And then they called somebody else. They took us in for questioning. And this uh, Canadian lady, she goes, I know you had a really long trip coming here. Just give me a short sentence of what happens if we send you back to Iran. And I gave her some reasons and stuff like that. And she said, "Do you know anybody here?" I said, "Yeah, my cousin lives here already." Okay, call your cousin. I call my cousin and like, "Oh, I'm here. I'm here." And uh, call my mom. Call everybody, please. So, anyways, they let me go. They let me go.
1: Farzad started a life in Vancouver, British Columbia. He was approved for landed immigrant status, Canada's version of permanent residency. With his legal right to work and his background in Germany, he quickly gained employment.
0: I'm a server at that restaurant, but that restaurant is terrible. It's, it's like a late night restaurant uh, with a lot of problems and stuff like that. So I went into this one restaurant, Maria's Taverna, and asked him if they need any you know servers. He's like, give me a second. Then comes Maria. She's the owner. She's the mom. And asked me a couple of questions. And she said, can you work any day? I said, any day, any night, you know, I'm I'm open. So I remember they told me, okay, come on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. So I went on Sunday. Ended up working there for four and a half years with this family. Uh, Wonderful family. During the day... It's boring, you know, I just keep busy cleaning, whatever. And then I always ask Maria, the owner, she's she's an amazing cook. Uh, She does most of the cooking herself during the day. And I go, Maria, anything I can do to help, I can help you. I'm like inside the kitchen helping Maria as much as I can. I'm like, okay, I can cook, you know, I can help. Because you see it done, you just learn it. And then eventually I said, uh, Maria, do you, do you mind if I learn your recipes? Because I told her, I they knew, they knew I'm going to move to Portland one day. And she's like, sure, no problem. You know, you're like my son, whatever. So that's when I started to learn from her how to make, you know, all the Greek food.
1: Farzad found a home at Maria's Taverna and after several years became a Canadian citizen. But he still yearned for his final goal of reuniting with his family in the United States. In the meantime, however, he met a woman who would later become his wife. A Persian immigrant herself, Shiva had arrived in Canada the year before Farzad. But falling in love complicated things.
0: When we met, I told her, I said, I'm moving to U.S. And when I, once my green, I get my green card, I'm moving. So you know that. If that's a problem, you should just know right now. Maybe stop our relationship, whatever. But she said, no, it's okay. You know, OK, now it came the problem that if I would have got married right away, then I would have lost my uh, chance okay. to get a green card for, for U.S. because I'm in the process of getting a green card. So we got married in a, in a Persian way, you know, the traditional Persian way in 92. But I waited to register it till 96. That's when I got my
1: green card, uh, finally got my green card. 11 years after leaving Iran, Farzad finally received news that he had been approved to move to the United States as a legal permanent resident.
0: Legally, I went through the border here and that was for me was I I told my brother, I said I would not. Actually, I came visited once. I got a tourist visa for come come to Portland. But I told my brother, I said, after Canada, I'm not moving anywhere until I'm legal. I got my passport and stuff like that. Because he was telling me, he's like, oh, the border is so easy to go through. You can come here, maybe live here and go back. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. So anyways, I came here and then uh, eventually got my wife here and got a little apartment. Uh, Started selling cars with a friend uh, who still does it. Uh, Did a little car business, did not like. It was very, very hard. And we looked for business to buy. So we ended up buying a convenience store. So it was a really tough business. So finally, I look, start looking
1: for a restaurant. Farzad and his wife opened Blue Olive Bistro in northeast Portland, serving many of the Greek recipes he had learned from Maria's Taverna. Over the years, the restaurant has changed locations, and more Persian dishes have been added to the menu. After such a long journey to get to the United States, Farzad feels at home.
0: Here, it's, I mean, what's great about this country is, and I, I totally... Uh, appreciate it. It's, it's based on immigration. What are we, how many, uh, is it 250 years, something? Right. So, but when you live in like Europe, it's a little bit different, you know? Those people lived there all their life, over thousands of years. It's, it's tight. But yeah, here it's, it's different. You know, people don't look at you, oh, he's from Iran, you know, like that. I, I haven't really experienced that much here. Honestly, uh,
1: Portland has been great. After nearly three decades since he left, Farzad visited Iran it was a very different country than when he had left.
0: I went back after 28 years. For me, it was more depressing because you go back to something that's so different in a bad way than what you, when you left. I went to the uh, street that we lived, and uh, I wouldn't, the only thing I could recognize is the, is the tree that I planted in front of our house. It was huge. I didn't go to the south, actually. I was only there for two weeks. And I was tempted to go see those cities. I didn't have enough time, but then I'm like, I don't want to kill that image that I had when I left. Because every time, it's like, you're not going to recognize anything. It's changed so much. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to leave that image in my head and just leave it.
1: Many Roads to here is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was produced by Joe Marks and myself. Our audio editing was superbly done by Rick March, assisted by Gordon Graham. Roger Porter conducted the original interview. Our executive producer is always the most compelling man in the room, Sankar Raman. For more stories, stream us at prp.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.